If you have your Bibles, if you were to open it up right now, no matter what translation you're looking at, the title is probably something like this, Abram Rescues Lot, all right? And so as we'll see, that's the sequence of events that transpire in Genesis 14. But if I was given the job to go and give like titles to different parts of sections, which what a job that would be, I feel like I would flourish in that job. All right, if I had that job, here's what I would choose. All right, I would steal from Charles Dickens and I would say a tale of two devotions. All right, and here's what I mean by devotion. I mean like commitments and loyalties and allegiances, not like the, I'm going to get away with Jesus and do my devotional. What I'm talking about is these deep commitments that are in our own hearts. And here's why I would choose that. I think in this passage, yeah, you see the sequence of events that happen with Abram rescuing Lot here, which we're going to get into. But at the core of the story are really Abram's and Lot's devotions. What really happens and transpires through the sequence of events is it reveals what's in their hearts, where they're committed, where they're devoted in this life. And all the, the sequence is actually just kind of what wraps around this core of the devotions of Abram's and Lot's hearts, all right? And so what I want to try to do is I just want to unpack these devotions that we see here, all right? So we just kind of want to rip away from the exterior and try to get down into the core of really what's going on in Abram's and Lot's life here. And so that's just the whole goal that I have, all right? So we're just going to do it sequentially. We're going to deal with the devotion of Lot first because he's the first part of the story. We'll move to the devotion of Abram second. And then just to close out, I just as we have exposed the devotions of their hearts, I just want to ask some personal questions for us to close out. Sound good? So here's, we'll begin with the devotion of Lot um, since he starts off. And to do this, like I need to summarize the very first 10 verses. And I'm just going to be really honest with you why I'm doing that. There's a bunch of names in there that I cannot pronounce. All right. And so I'm just going to try to do my best to summarize this to where you get what's going on. And then we'll pick back up in verse 11. So Verse 1, you get into Genesis chapter 14, and it starts off with a war, all right? So um, what, here's what happens. The kings of Jordan, so Jordan, if you look, think back to Genesis 13, Jordan, the area of Mesopotamia is just like the land that's before the river of Jordan, all right? And so there's a number of different cities that are around this place, and they all serve this king, Kedor Laomer, all right? What a name, right? So they serve this king for 12 years. And what this means is they're constantly, over this 12 years, they're sending him offerings. So they're sending like gifts, they're sending produce, they're sending food, they're sending the things of their land to this king in devotion to him. And these five kings that are sending these offerings to King Kedor Laomer, they rebel in year 13, all right? Meaning they just stop sending all these gifts. They stop sending all the offerings, all right? And so in the 14th year, King Kedor Laomer and three other kings, they come to fight against the five kings who've rebelled, all right? So that's everything that's going on in the first 10 verses. And two of those kings that you find that are rebelling against King Kedor Laomer are Sodom and Gomorrah, all right? And so that gets us to verse 11. Here's where it picks up. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. All right, so just stop there, trying to 
put all this together, right? So King Kedor Laomer and the kings accompanying him, they dominate the five kings at this war, right? Like they just, they completely plunder them, all right? So you have four against five. The four just completely destroy the five, all right? They take everything that is in their lands. And who's part of this plunder? It's Lot, Lot and all of his possessions and all of those people that are living under him in his tent, they are all taken away during this massive war. And these two verses, they're really important. We're going to come back to them because you really begin to see some of the devotions in Lot's life here. But we need to move on through the rest of the story here. So here's what verse 13 says. One of the survivors came and told Abram the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men, born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and other people. All right, so there's a lot to say here between verses 13 through 16, but what I want to really try to keep our focus and attention on right now is the story of Lot. All right, so Lot's rescued by the heroics of his uncle. So Abram receives word about all that's happened with Lot. He takes up arms, they go pursue King Kedor Laomer, as well as all those that are with him, and what we see is a great victory. And what you have to ask, right, what get, what the question that like, is begged in the first 16 verses here is how did Lot get himself in such a mess, right? Like, how did he get himself here? Why is he in this mess? Why is he swept up in all the commotion of this war whenever it seems like in chapter 13, you see God's blessing that's on both Abram and Lot, right? They're so wealthy because God's blessing has been on their life that they have to separate because the land is not big enough for the both of them. So what happens? What happens to Lot? Well, the short answer is Lot's devotions in his life. The decisions that he makes lead up to what happens here in this passage. So go back and think on chapter 13 with me, all right? So Lot and his crew, they're at odds with Abram and his crew, right? The land's too small, they have to separate. Abram came to Lot to work out the differences between them two. And remember what happens at the very end of that. Lot gets preference because Abram lays down his own rights, right? Abram's the one that gets the promise. He lays down his rights in order to work out the conflict between the two of them. And so Lot gets preference of the land. And so what Genesis chapter 3 tells us is he lifts up his eyes. He looks over the course of the land. And what he finds is that the valley of the Jordan is luscious. The Bible talks about it as if it's like the Garden of Eden. It's so beautiful, luscious with life. But here's what we see whenever he makes this decision. In that very same passage, you see twice within just a few verses that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is brought up even in the midst of him making the decision. So here's what that means. Lot looks over the course of the land and he sees how luscious and everything is 
even with the knowledge of sin that resides in the land, and he makes the decision to go to that part of the land rather than following the will of God. Do you see that? So right out of the gate, you see Lot's devotions in Genesis 13. He looks at God and he looks at the gifts of God and he says, I want the gifts. That's what we see in Genesis 13. And so what happens here is you see the effects of Lot's devotions, all right? So Lot, his story is very close to that of like the city of Pompeii, all right? If you remember the city of Pompeii, um, it's a Roman city that's near the volcano of Mount Vesuvius, all right? And so the volcano destroyed the whole city and it killed 16,000 people in 79 AD despite multiple warnings that came up that this was likely gonna happen, all right, so here's some of the warnings that came up for this city of Pompeii before the volcano, volcano erupted. The underground springs that were a part of this city completely dried up, all right? If that wasn't enough, there were multiple earthquakes that were reported were around this city. And if that's not even enough, they took ashes and volcano lava and used that as the resources to build and construct buildings in the city like should be just a huge red flag, right? Like this is about to end terribly for us. But they didn't give heed to any of it, right? And so no one listened to the warnings and the results people were surprised by, all right? They were surprised, they were shocked. The reports by archaeologists is that they went into this ash and the lava that had dried up and what they found as they were digging up inside of it is you could see bodies, that were found clutching to the valuables of their life as they were trying to flee from what was happening with the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And so here's what a geologist said, all right? The problem with volcanoes is that the time between eruptions is usually longer than one lifetime, so people forget the terrible damage one can cause. And look, the same can be said about Lot's life here, all right? So wrap your heads around this, all right? Abram and Noah were alive at the same time. Wrap your head around that, right? Noah, who experienced both the deep wickedness of sin in the land, as well as the destruction of the flood, lived at the same time as Abram. Now, Lot probably wasn't alive at the same time, but here's what likely happened. If Abram took Lot with him, what did Abram share with Lot? He shared with him the sin of the land that was shared to him from his, his great-great-grandfather uh, Noah, as well as the destruction that came from the flood, right? He was saying, hey, here's what it looked like before the flood came. It, the whole land was filled with deep, dark wickedness. And what did God do when he looked down upon the land? He brought the flood. Com their sin completely destroyed their life in this world. Like all these stories would have been shared with Lot, but here's Lot's response. That happened to them, but I'm the exception, right? Like that's not going to happen to me. Whenever he looks across the land, he says, like, look, this is so beautiful. Look at God's gift. I want to come and partake in God's gift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, sin, the land is filled with sin, but I'm just going to keep my distance. 
right? I'm going to keep it at an arm's length away. It's not going to destroy my life. I'm going to make sure that I'm not falling into the traps of all that's going on in the other cities. But what happens is you see that it draws Lot in. Genesis 13 says that Lot sets his tent outside of Sodom. What happens in verse 12 here in chapter 14? It says they took Lot and his possessions. Listen to this. For he was living in Sodom. So look what happens. In chapter 13, tents, Lot looks at Sodom and says, okay, I'm going to keep him at arm's length away. I'm going to set up my tent. I'm going to be outside of where all the sin is happening. But by chapter 14, Lot has moved into the city. He's been drawn in. And before we get too judgmental of Lot, look, we need to recognize that we do this all the time. We do this all the time. We constantly look at things that our flesh wants and we say, I'm just going to dabble in it a little bit, but I'm going to keep it at its arm's length away so it doesn't destroy my life. But what we recognize after we've dabbled in it is that we are deep in our own sin, right? So here's just a couple examples, all right? Take dating, for, for instance, all right? Here's what we do with dating, right? You've probably experienced this in this life. Lord willing, this isn't where you're at right now, all right? But you have, you've hedged on your convictions, right? You're like, I just want to be, I just want to have fun, I just want to get into a relationship where I can just have fun. This person's attractive. They find me attractive. Yeah, they don't follow Jesus or they don't have the same convictions that I do, but we're just going to have some fun. It's not going to go very far, but I just, I just need some companionship in my life. But then you start making these hedges on your convictions even further. And then like Vesuvius and Pompeii, somewhere down the line, we're surprised by the results of what happened in the relationship. Because we hedge, right? Like, I'm just going to dabble in it, going to keep it at arm's length away, but we find ourselves in the same shoes as Lot that we're brought in deep into our own sin. Here's another one, all right? You're at work. Um, you see other people, like, they'll take a pen home there. They'll take a stapler home there. Like, oh, like, the company benefits. Like, there's things. It's a big corporation. It's fine. Everybody's doing it, Right? But then you get yourself into a mess and then you realize that you have these big temptations when you're looking at opportunities of things that are before you. And you're like, how, why in the world is it such a temptation for me to exploit the, the revenue, the gifts of the company for my own benefit, right? Why do I want to take advantage? It's a big corporation, but like you're here, you're like, why is my soul wanting to take advantage of my work, and it's because of the compromises that you made in your life. Or, lastly, you are thinking about like just the friends that are in your life, and you have some really smart friends, and they have great ideas. And some of them have seen success in their work, or maybe in their family, or maybe in their, their, the friend group that you're in. They have great ideas, they have great thoughts. And you heard them share them in private with you one time. You're like, man, that's a great idea. And so you try to use it and leverage it as if it's your own, right? And somehow along the way, it works to your advantage. But then you find that your life is wrecked with anxiety. And you're like, why is my life wrecked with anxiety? And you live with this deep down fear that you're going to be exposed. Why? 
because you've been living off of other people's ideas and stealing from their thoughts and taking them as your own and you're worried that all this that you've tried to build your life on, you're finally gonna be exposed as a fraud. Anybody ever dealt with any of these? Maybe I haven't dealt with yours, but look, you have it in your life, right? Every single one of us are like Lot. Every single one of us are like Pompeii. We've all looked at the warning signs and you're like, ah, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be the exception. But then we find ourselves wrapped in the entanglement of sin. And look, here's what it says. It says your devotions are off. Just like Lot, when he looks at the land and he knows what resides in it, he, we, in the same way, look, same way, we look at the gifts of God and we look at God himself and oftentimes we look at God and say, I want just your gifts. And what happens is it sweeps us away in destruction just like what we see here with Lot. And look, we shouldn't be surprised by the results. We shouldn't be surprised by the results, all right? So look, here's what we need to learn from Lot. Here's what we need to learn. Look, sin is seductive. Sin is seductive. Anytime that you just decide, I'm going to dabble with it, it always draws you in and it always leads to your destruction. It never goes well. Never. And so here's your big takeaway. I need to deal with the sin that's in my life. I I cannot tolerate sin. I have to work to eradicate it at all times in my life. You need to have an awareness of your own soul and what your flesh is prone to want to step into. What are the desires of my flesh that I want to give way to on a regular basis? You have to know it, y'all. You have to know what your heart is drawn to in terms of the gifts of God, the things that may be good in this world that you want to take from being a good thing and how your heart wants to turn it into an ultimate thing. Because look, it will destroy you. And so if you're asking like, well, okay, what does it look like for me to try to put this to practice? Romans 13, 14 says like, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Okay, how do I do that? How do I remove this provision that I give to my flesh, the space that I give room? Whenever I say I'm gonna dabble in sin, I'm gonna keep it at an arm's length away that's making provision. Whenever Paul says make no provision for the flesh, What can that look like? What's my first step? Here's an idea, all right? Thomas Watson says this. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Let me say that again, all right? Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So here's a first step for you. Start by praying that instead of seeing sin as sweet, that God would transform your desires and that he would make the sin that your heart longs for look bitter. Here, like, when you pray, pray with an honesty. God, I want you to know my own heart so I don't need to hide anything from you. In fact, I can come speak with you about the things that reside in my heart. God, this sin seems so sweet to me. God, my heart wants to, it just wants to go after this thing. Like, I want to dabble with it, dabble with it in some way because I know that it's off restraint. I know it's something that will actually destroy me. God, it looks so sweet. Would you train, transform my desires of my heart? God, would you change me? God, would you change the sweetness that my eye sees in this thing? Would you change it to actually look bitter? Because look, 
God, I want Jesus. I want the good things that you have promised me in this life and not the, the, the minor things, the things that would be settling in this world for the greater things that I know heaven affords me. God, make my sin bitter so that Jesus may seem sweet to me, all right? So we see Lot has a devotion to this world and the things that come with it. He dabbles with fire and he gets burned. And here's what we see with Abraham in verses 17 through 24. We get the alternative, all right? We get the alternative here. We get to see Abram's devotions here and they are an alternative to what we see in the, lot, in the life of Lot, all right? So Remember with me verses 13 through 16, all right? Here's what happens. Abram's informed of Lot's capture. He goes after him. He doesn't respond with Lot made his bed. He, got, he has to lay in it. No, he goes and he fights King Kedor uh, Laomer. And look, he just, he just destroys him, all right? He just destroys him. King Kedor Laomer runs in retreat as Abram comes at him in the night and Abram chases him to the edges of the land. And after Abram has just kicked his butt, like he goes and he takes all the stuff that King Kedor Laomer has stolen from all the other kings and he comes back with it and he's, he comes back to the land he's met by two kings, all right? Which is where we pick up in verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kedor Laomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in Shaveh Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you, Abram. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then the progression that's happening here, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people, but take possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so you can never say, I made Abram rich. Basically saying, so you can't take credit for me. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten, but as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, they can take their share. So while studying this this past week, one author said this of, uh, of Abram, that it's his greatest trial that he's experienced in his life up to this point, these two kings, all right? Salem and Sodom, these two kings that come and they test Abram's devotion, all right? And here's how they do it, all right? Whenever they come and they approach Abram, they both bring different ideas. They bring both a proposal to Abram, and they are testing Abram's devotion in terms of the provision of God's promise, Essentially, here's what they're coming and proposing, all right? One of the kings is coming and saying, hey, are you going to trust God for the provision of his promises? And the other king is saying, hey, are you going to look at the spoils that are here? You can just take what man is offering you here, and you can go along your way. 
Which, you're gonna, which one are you going to go with? Are you going to go with God or are you going to go with man? These are the two options that are basically posed to Abram here. And so the two options, to get a little bit more detailed, you have Melchizedek, which is God's representative in this story, right? So he's the king of Salem. That's future Jerusalem that's here. He's also described as the priest to God most high. So the rest of the Bible, which we're going to get into this in just a little bit, refers to Melchizedek as a Christ-like figure in the Old Testament. You can go to Psalm 110, then you can also go to the New Testament. You can see Hebrews 5 and 7. They both speak of Melchizedek as a Christ-like figure. So Melchizedek is God's representative here. He's the one that's bringing the option to follow God. Then you have King of Sodom, the world's representative. We don't need to go in any further, right? He's the one that comes and represents the place that's just filled with sin, all right? So both kings, they meet Abram at his return. Abram and they both make an offer to him. And here's the difference, all right? So Melchizedek, here, here's what he offers. He offers fellowship as well as waiting. Fellowship as well as waiting. What we see here is he comes out, he brings bread and wine. He's offering hospitality and fellowship. Hey, come in and enjoy, enjoy God. Enjoy the work that God's done in your life by going and winning this war for you. But then he also speaks blessing over him. He says, just as God has provided you in war, so he will provide in fulfilling his promises. He's basically saying, hey, look what God's done for you in this, this particular war. God's favor rests upon you. Receive the blessing. That's a gift, Abram. That's a gift. So what God has provided you here in, the, in this war in terms of going and winning this war, it's likely that there are about 10,000 soldiers. He had 318 men. God provides the victory in this war as he goes out. And he's saying, look how blessed you are, Abram. So look, Abram, wait Wait for, the, for God to fulfill his provision and his promises. Wait for God. Wait. His favor rests on you. Look, God is faithful and you can trust in his promises. Then you have King Sodom that comes and what does he offer? He offers instant gratification, but at a cost. He says, take the possessions. Basically, have the riches, have the land, have the possessions, have the recognition. But here's what he says in return. Give me the people. Here's what, he, here's what he's offering. He's saying, take the, see how God's fulfilling the promises, but settle by giving me back the people. You can have the land, you can have the recognition, but you can't have the great nation. Take it and go. And in the midst of these propositions that are brought to Abram, we get to see his devotions because here's how he responds. You look at Melchizedek, and he says, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Here's what happens with Abram. He looks at Melchizedek. He recognizes someone that's his spiritual superior. He recognizes that this is a word coming from God. I've received favor. God has gone before me in the war. His blessing is going to come to fulfillment in my life. And he gives him a tenth of everything. But then in response to Sodom, he says, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to him. Basically, he's saying, I'm going to believe Melchizedek's declaration and I'm going to reject Sodom's proposition. And it reveals where his devotion lies. He looks at what would be the reduced fulfillment of his promise and says, no to the things of this world, and he looks at God and says, I'm going to trust in you. 
Now, here's the reality for us, all right? You can look at Abram's life and you can be like, well, this is like a really big proposition, right? Like, Abram's approached by two kings. Abram, what God has done in his life, I don't even know if I can begin to relate with it. Going and trying to fight 10,000 people with just a handful of men and seeing God really produce this great victory in war, like, how is that relatable to me, right? People just come in offering land and possessions, like this immediate riches and wealth and recognition. And like, who gets that, right? Abram's situation is unique. He's not special, right? We've seen that he was a guy that was an adulterer. God comes and he takes this first step towards Abram. So there's nothing that he's done in order to earn God's favor in his life. He's just in a unique position before God. God has uniquely come and offered Abram something that you and I don't often get. And so not likely you and I will have opportunities to act in faith like Abram where we go and try to fight these big victories or these big wars and experience big victories. Nor is it likely that you're going to be approached by world rulers and have this big ultimatum that's posed to you in your life. Here's what a life of devotion is going to look like for most of us, all right? A life of devotion for us is going to look like a lifetime of small decisions. A life of devotion for us is going to look like a lifetime of small decisions, all right? When we step into Christianity, this is just like how our culture is rubbed off on us. A lot of us, when we step into a relationship with Jesus, we have Abram in mind. We think about big ultimate sacrifices, but also great glory. I'm like these big things. I'm going to ride the coattails of Jesus. I'm going to get like this popularity. Like people are going to look at me and see my devotion to God. I'm going to gain a large following or massive social media or whatever it may be, right? We think big, right? We think big sacrifice, but great gains. What it's probably going to look like more is actually like a faithful grandparent in your life. A faithful grandparent who has a lifetime of faithfulness, no tabloids, and a lifetime that is filled with small yeses to God's promises and small noes to compromises. That's what probably a lifetime of faithfulness is going to look like for us seated in these seats here tonight. All right? So take my grandmother for a for an example, all right? I'm gonna try my best not to cry because I love my grandmother, all right? So um, Frances Taggart is her name, and look, she lived a life of devotion, all right? Look, she was a faithful steward, all right? Uh, if, I, if you look at my grandmother, her and my grandfather, they both worked, but here's why they worked. Like, if you really look, I'm a receptive, a, re, a receiver of this, all right? They both worked to increase their capacity to give, not to increase their standard of living. They worked in order so that they could give away to people that needed. Like my grandmother passed two years ago. I'm still receiving monetary gifts from her. <laughs> like she was so faithful with the things that God provided them. They, they ended up paying off their house early and they just continued to give to those people in need in their life. Like they're just so generous, so generous. She was a faithful disciple um, at her funeral. There were a handful of younger women that came to the funeral and these were women, when they were little girls, my grandmother adopted them into her life and would spend her weekdays cooking with them, meeting with them, discussing the Bible, discipling them up in the faith. 
showed up at her funeral in tears, weeping because of the loss of my grandmother. She was a faithful witness. Um, there was things that happened in our family um, where some sins that were pretty, like, uh, people were just really, uh, I wouldn't say disappointed, but they're just, like, really broken up about, right? Like, there's sins that happened that they were like, I don't know how my family's going to receive me. And I just remember hearing the story of... Um, this close relative that fell into this sin, she came and talked to my grandmother. And my, you know what my grandmother's response to her was? Um, hey, do you understand how much Jesus loves you? And if you turn from this, Jesus is going to welcome you with open arms. He, like, loves you so deeply. He loves you so deeply. He, he wants just to see you look at that sin, recognize the sin that it is, confess it and then come and receive the mercy and kindness and grace that God has for you. Like, that's the kind of witness my grandmother had, not just to that, that close relative of mine, but like to anybody in our family and those that were in her church and those that were in her community. Like, this is the witness that she had in her society. And then the last one was her marriage. My grandfather and my grandmother, like, they would laugh together, y'all. Like, they enjoyed each other's presence. My grandmother, she passed away because of failing kidneys. And um, the last experience that I got with my grandmother, um, I was in the hospital room with her, and she's writhing in pain. And the only person that could bring any relief to her was my grandfather. What he did, y'all, is he would come, and he placed his hands on her face. And she's itching because when your kidneys fail, like your whole body is just overcome with like, it feels like it's just constantly itching. You can't ever settle it. And so she's writhing in pain. My grandfather would just come and put his hands on her face and a hush would come over her body. And you know why the laughing and the comfort? It's because there was a lifetime of saying no's, small no's to others. And there was such a deep trust in their relationship. Look, all of this was in faithfulness to Jesus. Her devotion was a lifetime of small no's to compromise and small yeses to God's promises, believing that the life that she could live with Jesus was greater than anything this world could offer her. And that is what a lifetime of devotion is going to look like for the most of us. It's not, it's not big riches. It's not a lot of fame. It's not a lot of glory. But look, it is a full, full life. That's what Abram receives here. You see the devotion, a lifetime of devotion to him. Yeah, he falls, but you see constant repentance in his life. But look, it leads to a full life, which is what I look at my grandmother and I just, I hope to be like her, you know? I hope to be like her. So look, hopefully I've been able to draw out for you here, like in Genesis 14. Yeah, this is the sequence events of how Abram has gone to rescue Lot. But at the core of this, is really what is at the devotion at the heart of both Abram and Lot. Do you see it? Like Lot's devotions, he wanted the things of this world and he got swept away in its destruction. 
Abram, his devotion and his heart resided with God. And look, as we know the rest of the story, God's promises come true in his life. So look, here's how I want to close it out. I just want to ask a few questions for us, all right? Just ask a few questions so we can try to wrestle with this personally, all right? So here's the first question. Which tale of devotion do you find yourself in? As you look at the, the tale of Lot, as you look at the tale of Abram, where do you find yourself? No matter where you're at and you're following Jesus, here's the reality for every single person that's in this room we all need to understand that we are all lot in the story at some point in our life and we were never Abram. We're all lot and we were never Abram, right? We've all chosen Sodom over Salem. We've all chosen man over God. We've all chosen earth over heaven. And that's what Ephesians 2 tells us, all right? So here's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. Look, according to the ruler of the power of the air. That's Sodom, right? Like, that's what we chose. And it left us in the trail of destruction and the trespass of our sins. The spirit now working in us of disobedience. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we are by nature children under the wrath as God as others were also. So look, here's what we need to realize. We need to step back and say, look, at some point, I was Lot. Every single one of us. None of us are born Abram. All of us are born Lot. And we all had to come to this recognition that my devotions resided with this world, not with God. And it leaves you in this place where you need to look at this story and say, I need the better Melchizedek. I need the better Melchizedek. Here's what I mean, all right? So Hebrews 7 tells us about Melchizedek. His name meant the king of righteousness, all right? King of Salem means the king of peace. All that we know of Melchizedek is what we see in this story. We get no records of where he came from in terms of like birth parents, and we get no, uh, we get no story about his end. And so what the Bible tells us is that Jesus is, comes in the order of this priest Melchizedek, meaning that Jesus is eternal. He is the greater king of righteousness. He is the greater king of peace. He is the one that goes before God as our great high priest and is constantly advocating for you. And here's what is said about this greater Melchizedek in verses 26 through 27. It says, for this is the kind of high priest that Jesus is and that we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Look at this. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. Because of this, he did this once for all time when he offered himself. You need the greater Melchizedek. The one that is truly, that is alive and seated at the right hand of God, who is the king of righteousness and peace. The one that has no end. He has no beginning. He has no end because he is eternal. So that means that he can stand and advocate for you for the rest of eternity. 
You need the greater Melchizedek. Our devotions have resided with this world, but look, you have a God who so loved you that was willing to come and be your great high priest that was willing to lay down his life for you because you couldn't do it for yourself so that you can have constant access to the righteous, almighty God. And that's what has happened for you because look, Colossians 1 tells us when we trust in Jesus, there's a transfer of kingdom. You go from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Sodom, to the kingdom of light, which is the kingdom of Salem, Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus does for you. So look, at some point, all of us, our devotion has resided with this world. If you've trusted in Jesus, there's been a transfer, right? Now here's the problem with the life that we live here in this world. Yes, we are justified before God, but we are still broken people that live in a broken world, which means that we still feel the effects of sin. So look, here's the next question for you. Where are you playing with sin in your life? Where are you playing with sin? Look, we've all done it, like we said, right? Like, we've all done this. We've all looked at sin and said, I'm going to be the, the exception here. And so we, we step in, we dabble with it, we tolerate it, and it ends up destroying our life. So look, where are you playing with sin, and where do you need not to tolerate it? Like, where do you need to put it to death? Where do you need to pray to God that he would change your desires? God, I hate this about myself. I hate that this sin looks so sweet. Would you change and transform my desires to where Jesus is the one that looks sweet? And then lastly, what's the small decision that God's placing before you in life right now? Like, what's the small decision that you need to take in terms of a step of devotion to God? What do you need to say no to? What's the small no that you need to say to in terms of compromise? Like the, the thing that you're playing with sin. And then what is the yes that you need to say to in terms of God's promise? When it comes to your stewardship, like where do you need to say yes in generosity? Where's God provided means? Look, here's the reality. If you make forty to $50,000, you're in the top 1% of the whole entire world. You have margin, all right? Where is God calling you to be generous? Secondly, discipleship. Who is he calling you to lead? Like, who is he calling you to, like, give your life away, to pass off the faith to? Who is he brought into your life that you need to take under your wing and show them and raise them up in the, the ways of godliness? Third, like, witness. Like, who's God placed in your life, man? Like, who has God brought providentially into your life in order for you to share the good news of Jesus with? And then lastly, like fidelity. Is it saying no to a relationship, saying no to social media, and saying yes to the, the promises that you have and the satisfaction that you find in your relationship with Jesus? Like, where, where are the small no's and what are the small yeses that you need to make in your life in steps of devotion Right now, look, in the tale of two devotions, we need to learn from that a lot, right? We need to learn that sin is seductive. It entices us in. It will ultimately destroy, destroy our life. And look, it should lead us to follow in the footsteps of Abram, trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, changing our devotions from the way of this world to that of Jesus, the one who's done everything for us, just completely trusting in what he's done and praying that in the lifetime of small decisions that he will too fulfill his promises in our life and he'll give us a full life. Amen? Let's pray.